This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claim, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he'd married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now the reason we're going through these three stories together and taking this big chunk of scripture is because really they have a common theme, and it's this, that sharing in Christ's mission means sharing his rejection. Sharing in Christ's mission, going out into the world and preaching the gospel also means 
sharing in Christ's rejection. And it's what his forerunner, John the Baptist, had to experience, and it's what those who follow him, his disciples, are also called to endure. After all these great miracles we've heard about, Jesus stilling the storm and casting out the legion of demons and and healing the woman with the flow of blood and raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, despite all those grand and glorious and wonderful miracles, now the ominous shadow of the cross falls across these pages. And it begins, of all places, by Jesus returning to his hometown, the little town of of Nazareth. And really, it barely registers as a town. It was maybe 150 or 200 people. Would not even merit an exit ramp on the freeway. This place was tiny. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know lots and lots and lots of different places are mentioned. Not Nazareth. Not even named. In fact, it's only a couple hundred years after Mark writes these words that Nazareth is first mentioned outside of Christian literature. It's a complete nothing place. But Jesus goes back to his home to the people that he had grown up with. You might remember that although Jesus had been born in Bethlehem and he'd gone down to Egypt to escape the wrath of, of Herod the Great, he had returned to Nazareth when he was two years old. And now Jesus is about 35 years old. So he spent over 30 years in this little city of Nazareth, this tiny village, really, this hamlet. And he goes, as is his practice, into the synagogue to preach, to open up the scrolls and to teach the Old Testament. And the synagogue hearers, like so many places where Jesus had taught, are, they're amazed, they are astounded, and they're bewildered. I mean, they are very impressed by Jesus' miracles. It's interesting, they don't deny the mighty works Jesus has done. They fully acknowledge that Jesus has done some incredible things. And they openly admit the wisdom of his teaching. The words that are coming off of Jesus' lips are are wise and profound and gracious, and they acknowledge all of that. But they are offended, literally scandalized at Jesus, because they know this guy. They know Jesus. They've known him in this small town for over 30 years. Jesus is the carpenter. Really, it's not so much a carpenter as a builder, someone who worked with his hands, probably more in stone than in wood. And Jesus was basically the local handyman. So here's this Jesus preaching. Wait a second, isn't this the guy that put our roof on last spring? Didn't he do our in-law's deck? We know this guy. He's completely ordinary. There's nothing special about him. I went to high school with him. We were on the basketball team together. There's nothing extraordinary about this person. And in this culture, a great person was defined by their lineage. You wanted someone with an impressive family tree who could show that he arose out of the roots of greatness and they were great men and great women generations before him. You had to show that you had a pedigree and Jesus does not have a pedigree and he's from a town that is utterly unremarkable. It's in fact Nathaniel in in the Gospel of John who exclaims, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And in fact, that's the opinion these people have of their own town. Nothing good can, can come out of this little hick place. You might have heard the term familiarity breeds contempt. That's actually a very old proverb. It goes back to 2 BC 
by a Syrian philosopher. It may well have been known by these people. They certainly demonstrated the truth of it. Familiarity breeds contempt. We know this guy. They were very knowing. They were very cynical. And they were probably a little resentful about Jesus. How dare this guy, our neighbor, we know his family, we know the five boys in the family, we know the sisters, how dare this local kid rise above his roots? It's not just the people up top who are trying to push down those below him. It's also those at the bottom who resent those who try to climb above them. And so the town is very suspicious of Jesus, very resentful, and they are offended at Jesus. They admit his miracles, they admit the wisdom of his teaching, but there is a strong barrier in their hearts to accepting Jesus as a man sent from God. He's not filled with the glory and the exotic credentials that they expect. They would probably welcome some mysterious stranger who showed up in town, but the local guy, the guy they know, no, not him. And in response to their rejection and to their offense, Jesus quotes this well-known proverb, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, his own relatives, his own house. I mean, that's certainly the story of the Old Testament, isn't it? When you read about prophet after prophet after prophet who were rejected by their own people, they came to speak words of repentance and faith and grace, and the walls went up. No one wanted to hear it. So this is just par for the course, exactly what a prophet from God, could expect from God's people. And amazingly, Mark tells us that Jesus could not do any miracles there. He couldn't do any miracles. That's an astounding verse, that Jesus was unable to do any miracles in the town. And it's a verse some of us might be tempted to kind of smooth over and explain away. Here's what John Calvin, of all people, said. Certainly, unbelievers, as far as lies in their power, bind up the hands of God by their obstinacy. Calvin said that. That's a remarkable example, really, of someone who was so submitted to the text, he was willing to confess a truth that might have been a little awkward to his own theological system. What a great example for us. But what a sobering truth, that our faith, as it were, binds up God's hands. He is willing to pour forth power and grace and healing and freedom. But if people harden their hearts against Christ, he cannot and he will not do miracles and pour out his grace. Our unbelief and our rejection and our lack of faith puts the stopper, as it were, in the jug of God's mercy. And Jesus, we're told, is amazed at their lack of faith. He's amazed at their lack of faith. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark we're told that Jesus was amazed. He is stunned, he's shocked, and he's boggled at the fact that his own hometown, his own family, in the face of the glorious truths that he'd been teaching so evidently from God, and in the face of these powerful miracles, were still saying no to him. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. They were amazed at him. He was equally amazed at them. And isn't the lesson here that miracles are not enough to create faith? The most powerful demonstration of the Spirit, 
the most amazing casting out of demons or raising the dead or healing the sick or stilling the storm, none of those miracles are enough to create faith in someone's heart. If they were, as we imagine, oh, if only, if only there was something spectacular and incredible that would compel people to bow down and acknowledge that Jesus truly is God. If that was the case, you would think that Jesus would, in fact, do some extra miracles here at Nazareth, wouldn't he? The people didn't believe, so Jesus was forced to do twice as many miracles as he normally did. No, just the opposite. Their lack of faith and their unbelief and their resistance closes off the door to miracles. It closes off the door to nothing but a few scattered healings. When we reject Jesus and refuse to accept him from God, we are slamming the door on the mercy of God working among us. And God, as it were, says, okay, if that's what you want, I will step away from you and leave you to your own devices. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. And God forbid those words ever be spoken over us. Jesus was amazed at Bart's lack of faith. What a horrible thing to hear about Jesus' assessment of us, that our lack of faith and our unbelief would, in fact, astound and grieve the heart of the Savior. But that is what happened here. And so we see in this first part that Jesus is rejected by his own people. You would think of all the people that would welcome you and all the people that that would accept you and affirm you and encourage you, Surely it would be your own family. Surely it would be your own household and the people you grew up with who changed your diaper and played with you on the playground and knew you as a human being. Surely of all people you would expect these ones would be encouraging and supportive and welcoming. And they're the very ones who reject Jesus. The very people who should have accepted him and welcomed him with joy turn their faces against him and harden their hearts. Jesus comes to this world as we sing, scorned by the ones he came to save. This is the persistent grace and love of God. Coming into this world, knowing full well he is going to be scorned and rejected and despised. But this is what Jesus came to do. This is fully part of his mission. And he's not um, thrown off course by this. Listen to these Famous words from Isaiah 53, so relevant here. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a shoot out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Those are the prophetic words that Jesus came to fulfill. And so his rejection, in fact, serves the deeper purposes of Jesus' mission. Just like Joseph said to his own brothers when they appeared in Pharaoh's court, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. The same with Jesus. This rejection and this growing rejection we're going to see in the gospel are going to lead to Jesus willingly laying down his life on the cross. 
and mankind's rejection of Christ somehow in a mysterious way fulfills God's eternal purposes of salvation. And in fact, God uses this rejection to open the doors to unimaginable mercy. So here's Jesus, first of all, being rejected. But he's not despondent, he's not cast down, he's not discouraged, even though in this culture, being rejected by your own family meant a massive loss of face. It was greatly shameful, but Jesus does not hold himself up in his room. He goes out to the villages. The mission must continue. He's not diverted from his course, and he goes off to the villages teaching. And then he calls his 12 disciples to him, and he sends them out on a short-term missions trip. The first one, they've been following Jesus, they've observed these miracles, they've watched these healings, and now it's their time. And this might seem grossly premature on Jesus' part. I mean, as we know, these disciples are deeply uncomprehending of Jesus' mission. They have only the vaguest and most confused ideas about what Jesus is up to. And they seem woefully ill-prepared to be sent out without Jesus on a missions trip, let alone the fact that he gives them authority to cast out demons. By the way, here's the keys, boys, over the realm of demonic forces. And you can imagine 12 hands immediately shooting up. They, I am sure, had a lot of questions. Okay, do we get a binder or something? Is there a video series we get to watch? Uh, We were not expecting this to happen. But here is Jesus' incredible instructions to them. He says nothing about how to cast out a demon. There's no coaching involved. Nothing about how to heal people, how to lay on hands, how to put together a sermon. The only thing Jesus wants to talk about is the packing list. And it's a very tiny packing list. Very small indeed. Nothing but sandals and a staff. Jesus wants his disciples to be radically focused on their missions with no distractions, no entanglements, nothing bogging them down and dragging them back. In fact, it's interesting, the four things they are to take, staff, sandals, belt, and cloak, are the four things that the people of Israel were told to have with them while they were eating the last Passover meal in Egypt. God is about to do something incredible, and you guys need to be ready to go on the journey, to go on the way without being encumbered by anything. And so they're called to this incredible mission of preaching and exorcisms and healings and told to rely only on local hospitality. Don't upgrade to a new house when someone offers it. Stay in the same house you've been in. They're to live a life, a mission of dependence on God. And yet... In this incredible mission they're called to, Jesus also speaks to them sobering words, warning them that they, like him, are going to experience rejection. Not everyone is going to welcome them. Not everyone is going to be excited about the words and the deeds that the disciples are going to be bringing to these little villages. And there are going to be those who don't want them in their house and don't want them in their village. And Jesus says... As a testimony against them, you need to shake the dust off your feet. Now, this is deeply symbolic because in these days, when a Jew returned from a pagan country back to the Holy Land of Israel, they would do this very thing. They would shake the dust, the defiled dust of these pagan heathen nations off their feet so they could be pure in God's land. 
So this is a great word of judgment. Jesus is saying to the disciples, treat those who reject you and who are therefore rejecting me, treat them as though they are heathens. Yikes. And this is a testimony against them. This will be called back on the day of judgment. Time is short. And so the disciples are called out not just to do exorcisms, not just to perform healings, but they are called to preach that people should repent. Not just to perform miracles. I doubt they would have experienced rejection if they were just performing miracles. Few people have a problem with an exorcism or a miraculous healing. People, in fact, would rush to the town square to experience that. But when the disciples faithfully begin preaching, you are under God's judgment. And one day you will have to face a holy God and give account. And you are enslaved to idols and evil things. And now you must repent. That's not a message that most people enjoy hearing. That's not the tickling of ears that raises large audiences. And it's that faithful preaching of repentance that will cause people to slam their doors in the faces of these faithful disciples. See, despite the casting out of demons and the healings, there ought to be no triumphalism. Triumphalism means a premature and over-exuberant joy in the good things that are happening, ignoring the dark side and the heavy side of discipleship. There is going to be rejection. There is going to be opposition. There is going to be a cross that you are going to have to bear because the disciple is not above his master. If Jesus has to go to the cross, you are surely not going to get a free pass if you claim to follow him. See, we face opposition because the advance of God's kingdom stirs up hostile powers. It stirs up the powers of darkness. And when we declare our loyalty to King Jesus, yes, our enemies become his, but his enemies also become ours. And we are declaring warfare on the evil one. We're no longer going to be his willing accomplice. We're joining Jesus and turning against him. And that is going to invite attack people. That is going to invite oppression and opposition from the forces of darkness. I heard a preacher once say, the Christian life, it's not like a war. And we all lean forward on our chairs. Oh, really? He said, it's not like a war. It is a war. It's no metaphor. It is a war. And dark and dangerous things are going to happen. A few hundred years ago, Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote these words. Must we be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed on bloody seas? I'm not quite sure what a flowery bed of ease is, but it sounds very comfortable. And if there's a flowery bed of ease option being offered, I would certainly sign up for that. But that is not what faithful discipleship means, and that is not what fruitful mission involves. It involves it involves fighting to win the prize and sailing through bloody seas and joining Christ in his cosmic warfare against the evil one. And now we turn to this 
story, this gruesome story of the death of John the Baptist, which is really a long parenthesis that Mark has put into here, a long flashback showing the fate of someone who also had been fearlessly and boldly preaching repentance to an evil tyrant. And the whole problem arose because John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, was telling Herod, you cannot marry your brother's wife. He's quoting, referring to Leviticus chapter 20. It's not lawful, Herod. Now, it's all a bit confusing because there's actually four different Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Great, the one who had killed all the babies in Bethlehem, he had ten wives, and that made it very complicated for future historians. This is his son, Herod Antipas. And when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four pieces, and this guy, Herod Jr., got one of the pieces. He's really the tetrarch, the ruler of a fourth part in Latin. And he had taken his half-brother's wife, Herodias, who also, by the way, was his half-niece. Like I said, the family tree is very convoluted and really quite incestuous. And he takes this woman while his brother-in-law is still alive to make her his wife. And John the Baptist is confronting this evil action. He's speaking up boldly and fearlessly against the tyrant. Even the Tetrarch, even this man with absolute power over his kingdom, is not above confrontation. And I might have made a pretty bold prophet, and I could have borne the, the, you know, the, the bees and the honey and the, and the camel cloak, and I might have enjoyed confronting a lot of people. But there's probably one person I would have left off my list of confrontation, and that would have been Herod. But John the Baptist is a faithful man, and he has the authority of God, and he is going to speak the truth of God to whoever needs to hear it, regardless of their position. John Knox was the famous reformer of Scotland, and it was said at his funeral that he neither feared nor flattered any man. Didn't fear anyone, didn't flatter anyone, just with his smoking beard proclaimed the righteousness of God. And it's a further irony that John uh, John Knox's grave lies under a parking lot in Edinburgh, further demonstrating the truth that no prophet has honor in his own country. But he was a man who didn't fear people and didn't flatter people, and that is a perfect description of John the Baptist. You know, there's a series called Dispatches from the Front. Is anyone familiar with this series? Yeah, a few of you are. And there's um, an episode in there about frontier missions in Africa between here's the Muslim north of Africa and here's the Christian south. And Christians from these villages are starting to go north and to preach the gospel across the river or across the mountain range to their uh, Muslim neighbors. And the American host of this program asked them, so how do you, how do you discern? Like, who do you go to and who you skip? And the missionary stared at him for a long moment and then they said, we don't skip. We don't skip. They all need to hear the message. And John the Baptist was not a man who would skip. He was going to be held accountable by God for his own ministry. And so he confronts Herod, and of course, he's arrested, as must happen in an absolute state. And Herod is a conflicted man. On the one hand, his, John the Baptist is saying some very rude and uncomfortable things about him, and his wife Herodias hates and loathes John the Baptist and is demanding his execution. But Herod is a deeply 
uncertain and deeply conflicted man. He fears John as a righteous and holy person. Isn't that amazing? John is bound, he's in chains, he's in the, rotting in a dungeon somewhere, and Herod on his throne is afraid of John. John's not afraid of Herod. Herod is afraid of John because he knows where the true power is. And we're told that he was greatly puzzled. He was, he was, really, he was really anxious and uncertain. And strangely, he liked to listen to John. I wonder why it was that Herod liked to listen to John. And I wonder if perhaps it was because John was the only man in Herod's little kingdom who was willing to look him in the eye and tell him the truth. John the Baptist was the only truth teller in Herod's palace. And Herod was surrounded by people, as all rulers and politicians are, of flatterers and people who got some kind of angle or are trying to get something out of him. John the Baptist has no angle except concern for Herod. And so Herod hears him gladly, and he's angry at John on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's, he's deeply curious, and so he protects him from his wife. And this story reminds me quite a bit of the Old Testament. Herodias is the Jezebel, and Herod is the Ahab, and of course, John the Baptist is the faithful Elijah, another prophet not welcomed in his own country. And finally, the opportune time comes. There's a birthday banquet. And birthdays, incidentally, were a pagan celebration. Jews did not celebrate birthdays. But Herod, who is half Edomite and half Samaritan, is conforming to the customs of Greece, of Greece and Rome. And so he has a birthday party, and he invites all the important people, all the military commanders, and all the local leaders. And his daughter comes in. And we know from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian around this time, that the daughter's name was Salome. And she was probably about 12 or 14 years old at this time, about the same age as Jairus' daughter who was raised from the dead. And reading between the lines, it seems like she was performing an erotic dance for her 55-year-old stepfather and his dinner guests. Very gross and very creepy. But they are aroused and they're entranced and they're half drunk. And so Herod foolishly swears this oath, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, even half of my kingdom. And she darts out and whispers to her mother-in-law, what should I, her mother, what should I ask for? And Herodias is ready. She knows exactly what she wants from her husband, and she at last has him in a corner. And the daughter is sent back with the demand, bring me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And Herod is, is horrified and sobered quickly, and he's distressed, but... Because of his oath and his dinner guests, he feels himself forced to order the execution. Isn't that amazing that Herod, in fact, in this story, is weaker and more cowardly than John the Baptist? He's afraid of his dinner guests. He doesn't want to embarrass himself. And so his seemingly smaller sins of lust and cowardice force him into the greater sin of ordering the murderer of an innocent, righteous truth-teller. And the executioner is sent off. It seems like John the Baptist was at a fortress far on the other side of Herod's kingdom, and the executioner gallops off to bring back John the Baptist's head. You can imagine the Baptist looking out the bars of his little cell, seeing the dust cloud and the horsemen coming up the hill. 
and his end has come. And his head is taken off and put gruesomely on a plate and brought to Herod. John Chrysostom observed that Herod cut off John's head, but he could not cut off John's voice. Though he was dead, he's still speaking to Herod's conscience. And so when this Jesus character arises with his own disciples preaching their own message of repentance, Herod is greatly alarmed, wondering, is this John the Baptist all over again? Now, this story is really not about Herod, and it's really not about John the Baptist. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' own rejection and death. The man of God, the fearless preacher, is seized and bound, and the weak leader recognizes his innocence, but is pressured into executing him. Does this sound like a familiar story? And at the end, the disciples come and take his body and put it in the tomb. It's a little preview of Jesus' own crucifixion. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And his own death also prepares the way and foreshadows Christ's own death. So here we are in Mark chapter 6, and the ominous cloud of rejection and crucifixion is overshadowing Jesus' mission. And yes, he's given his followers authority to preach and cast out demons and to heal, but with the further message that the way of discipleship and the call to mission is also the way of the cross. This is a sobering message, isn't it? This is heavy stuff. I feel kind of crabby today having to go through this. It's hard stuff because no one here likes rejection. Anyone here look forward to rejection for people saying no to you. In fact, some of our most painful experiences, I would guess, are experiences of rejection in our past because we all deeply long to be welcomed and accepted and affirmed. And the call of discipleship is a call to have the courage to be rejected because we are so confident in God's acceptance of us through Christ so joyful in God's welcome of us through his son that whether or not people accept us or reject us means very little to us. Now I recognize that as a highly aspirational statement because most of us do not naturally desire rejection and we don't naturally seek opposition. We avoid it. And although we justify it to ourselves on the basis of other people, well, I wouldn't want to offend him. I I wouldn't want to say something that would make her feel bad. Let's be honest. It's mostly for selfish reasons, isn't it? It's because I don't want to feel bad and I don't want to feel awkward. And we have deep pressures on us to not tip the boat, not to stir the pot. And some of us have extra pressures on us based on cultural reasons, don't we? I mean, as a Canadian, If someone honks their horn behind me, I'm just thrown off for the rest of the day. It just really, really rattles me because I want to fit in and and leave everyone their space and be polite and, and give people room. And to say to someone's face, in grace and in love, let's be clear, not just because we're really cranky, cantankerous people who relish confronting others, 
Some of us might have to repent of a bit of that spirit. But out of genuine love and concern for people, and most of all, out of faithfulness to Jesus, we are sometimes called, like John the Baptist, to speak truth to those who don't want to hear. We're called to speak God's truth to those who reject it. And there comes a time, of course, when we have to leave and shake the dust off our feet. But God is going to hold us accountable whether or not we have been faithful disciples and faithful speakers of the truth, whether we are men and women who are willing to confess Christ before men so that he will confess us before our Heavenly Father and his angels. But the good news is that any rejection and any opposition we might experience in our mission and discipleship is an invitation to participate in Christ's own sufferings, to fellowship with him in his cross, and also to share in Jesus' reward. Enduring suffering for Christ's sake demonstrates the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection in our own lives. And it may well be a more profound demonstration of the Spirit's power when we are willing to do that than when we cast out a demon or lay hands on his sick people. That is a true demonstration of the power of the Spirit when we are willing to embrace the suffering of the cross with joy and with hope. So, of all messages, this is one where we especially need to pray, don't we? So let's bow our heads and ask God for that grace we cannot produce from within. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son for us, for those who resist and reject so often. We thank you for the gift of your Son, that he has died for us and he has risen from the dead for us. And we are called to the sober and heavy task of following him in his way of discipleship, his way of the cross. But as we also heard, that those who take on Jesus' yoke are taking on a light and easy burden. And so often what makes it heavy, Lord, is our lack of faith and our resistance as we struggle against the goads. We pray for your Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, to do, to work in us what we cannot work in ourselves, the grace to confess Christ before men with boldness, with joy, with love, and with truth. We ask for this in his name and for his great cause. Amen. Let's worship God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.